Well, good morning, church. What a privilege it is for me to be back with you this Sunday, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I have prayed for you this week and thought about our time together last Sunday, and I trust that it will be an equally meaningful time for us today. Evan has kept it real enough to just acknowledge that there may be technical difficulties this morning. If that is true, it's my fault. <laughs> I, I carry with me about three different earpieces. They're all three just alike. The only difference is they fit different uh, transmitter packs for sound systems. And uh, churches where I go, you know, I can't keep a job. I just keep getting fired and sent somewhere else. Uh, they all have different setups, and so the earpieces are fit for me personally, and uh, sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. They're a little different than what some churches have, so we're still working with that, trying to get that going this morning, but that's not important. The Lord is here, and as long as you can hear what I'm saying and, and uh, can understand, we'll, we'll make it through this service together. I want you to think about this this morning. The Bible is a beautifully inspired book. Every time I think that thought, I say to myself, you know, that's really an understatement. It's more than a beautifully inspired book. The Bible has a depth and a complexity to it as far as the overall story is concerned, but yet also there is a simplicity to the story of the Bible. As I read the scriptures and I, I read through different portions of the scripture, there are times when I read something there and I say, Lord, you know exactly what I needed today. That, that hits home with me. That meets a need in my life and I'm grateful that you're revealing that truth to me at this moment. There are other times when I read the scripture and I have to scratch my head for a little while and say, what in the world is that there for? Do you ever do that? Well, I want you to think about this. If I, if I asked you to reach for your hymn book this morning, could you do that? Is there a hymn book out there anywhere? Could you read? If you reach for the hymn, reach, reach for the hymn book and just show it to me real quick. Can you do that? That's right. Everybody makes the same mistake. <laughs> You've grabbed the hymnal. The hymnal. I said the hymn book. There's a difference, right? When I ask you to reach for the hymn book, I want you to think about the Bible because the Bible is all about him and him is Jesus. You see, from the very beginning of Scripture, there is a point that God had in trying to get involved with the people that he created and put in this world. He wanted to enter into a loving relationship with them and through the generations of mankind you read in the Bible you know that sometimes they were very open to that invitation and sometimes they were not sometimes someone asked me well Bill what do you recommend how do you recommend that you study the Bible my answer to that is that you start with a good working understanding of the New Testament if you start with the Old Testament, and I'm talking mainly about young Christians, they're going to come away reading the Bible having more questions than they have answers. But the Bible is kind of like that algebra book or that higher math book that you have in high school, and I don't know if they are still this way because I haven't looked because the thought of looking really makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> but when I was in school, the math book had the answers in the back. 
Do you remember that? And so if you were working a problem and solving a quadrant equation of some sort or something, you would, you would work it and then you would say, I'm not sure. And you would turn to the back and hopefully you would find the answer there. Well, the Bible is sort of that way. You start with the New Testament toward the back and you see where the answers are and the answers are always found in Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. I think it's easy for us to see that when we study the New Testament, but it's not always easy to see that when we study the Old Testament. When you come to the Old Testament, you have to be mindful that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. The Old Testament is Jesus predicted and the New Testament is Jesus presented. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take you back to a very familiar Old Testament scripture found in Genesis chapter 6. And I want to see if I can show you just a few truths about Jesus in this story of Noah and the ark. You remember the story of Noah? When the flood came, I had, had a little chuckle with uh, Evan this morning when he gave me a bulletin that contains our worship guide for today. And I looked on the front of it. Do y'all see that? There's a, there's a picture of a, a raging flood and a, and a life, what's that called? A life raft, a life jacket, uh, what's it called? Life preserver, I don't know. It, but it's out there in the water, of course it's quoting a, a psalm there, but how appropriate, I didn't know that that's what would be on the bulletin this morning, but when God puts it together, I'm grateful. <laughs> We're going to talk about the great flood. Are, are you aware that in almost every culture, known to man, that there is a story in that culture about a great flood in ancient history. Now their story may differ a little bit, but what you discover is there is enough truth to what they are telling you and enough similarity that almost every theologian will trace whatever story about the great flood is out there back to the biblical story of Noah. Read with me here in Genesis chapter 6. Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, reading that verse, the, the, the English is a little difficult, but let me just remind you that it's talking about the, the, the thought and the intent of man's heart was evil. And look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry. That is, he regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You know, that story is repeated in the Bible as well. It's, it's mainly pictured when Moses is coming down from the mountain and he sees the, the, the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Do you remember that? You remember what the Lord said to Moses? I regret I've chosen them. I'm going to wipe them off the planet and I'm going to start with a totally different nation. I'm going to raise up another generation of people who will honor me. Do you remember what the Bible says? The Bible says that Moses reminded the Lord of all the promises that he'd made, mainly through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and said, Lord, you, you really don't want to do that. And the Bible says that Moses changed the Lord's mind. He changed his heart. Well, what I'm pointing out is he said basically to Noah here what he said to Moses, and that is, I'm disappointed. I regret that the very people that I've created are doing this. They've turned wicked, totally opposite of what I intended for them. And look at what it says in verse 7. 
I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry, that is, I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Think about it. We are six chapters into the writing of Scripture, the Bible, the beginning of world civilization, and already man has gone in a totally different direction than God intended. I mean, have you ever heard anybody say, I, I, I really long for the good old days? Let me tell you something. The good old days ain't always been so good, have they? I mean, going all the way back to the time of Noah, Man was evil. Man was wicked. We come to the New Testament and we hear the Apostle Paul say man is creative in his sin. We always seem to come up with an innovative and new way of sinning and rebelling against God. It's, it's bad today, isn't it? I mean, we could, we could bemoan that truth for a long time. I, I just want to remind you it's always been bad. I, I, want to, I want to read a scripture here from Matthew chapter 24. You can just reference this if you want to. I'll come back to Genesis 6 in just a second. But in Matthew 24, a lot of this scripture is devoted to Jesus telling us about when he's coming back. You know, we celebrate Jesus' arrival at Christmas, right? That's when he was born and born in Bethlehem. And then last Sunday, we celebrated his death and resurrection. And we know that he ascended to the Father and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven by His Spirit, He is with us today. But there is coming a point out there in the future when Jesus is coming back, when He's literally going to return to this earth and bring history to a close. It is an exciting time to think about, and especially in the way that the Bible presents it. But listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 37. It says, For the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says, referring to himself, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39 says, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is describing what's going on in the first century. He's describing what it's going to be like when he returns. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like what's happening today? Are people eating, drinking, just normal? And, and, and there's no sinfulness in eating and drinking unless we take it to the extreme and dishonor God with it. But what Jesus is describing here is that there is no thought, no attention, no awareness given to the idea that, number one, God has a plan for our lives. Number two, that God someday is going to redirect us and transform us into a totally different experience with Him. And that ultimately and eventually is heaven. So what he's saying here is that there's going to be a time where you look out and realize that people aren't giving any thought to the fact that, you know, this, this world may come to an end. They're just saying this is going to live forever. This is going to go on forever. And so we, we take everything for granted. That was what was happening in the days of Noah. And it, and it boils to the surface that the Lord said this can be described in only one way, and that is in the wickedness and the rebelliousness 
of man. And that's what he says. Now the next part of the scripture talks about the way through the flood, the wickedness of the world, and now the way through the flood. And that's what I want to spend our time on this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline for the sermon. Can you handle this? Can, 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 you, can you deal with it if I tell you what I'm going to tell you? And then when I get through, I'm going to tell you what I told you. Is that all right? So I'm going to reinforce it over one, one, once more twice. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see three simple thoughts. Then we're going to have one light bulb exposure <laughs> and two takeaways. Now, some of you are saying, well, I, I didn't even know all that. Well, you really do. Three simple thoughts, one light bulb experience or exposure, and then two takeaways. Now, some of you are going to go away saying, that was a six-point sermon. No, uh-uh. No, it's three points, a light bulb exposure, and two takeaways. So I want you to think about it that way. L let me show you something here. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is a hinge verse. It is the gate that opens to a new dimension of this whole story. Read verse 8 again with me. Look at what it says. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. After the blackness of the wickedness of man is described and is put on the stage for us to see, writing for us what it was like back then, the writer of Scripture now turns our thoughts to grace. You say, well, what does that mean? The word favor there in the Old Testament is the word chin. We would spell it C-H-E-N. It's translated that way in my Bible. In my, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. But in other places in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, this same word is translated as grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I love that picture there as the eyes of the Lord are looking down and the Lord it just seems to be taking in all the rebellion and the wickedness of the world and what's going on in the world. But then also he hones in and he focuses on one man, Noah. And Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know the story, right? You've been in church a time or two. You know that Noah and his family are going to be saved going through this flood experience. And how they are saved represents for me Jesus. And, and what he makes available to us through his death and his resurrection. Read it with me. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says here that God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I'm about to destroy them in the earth. Verse 14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth, shall perish. Verse 18. 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, the animals, and every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you, keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food to you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. The first thing I want you to show, show you here is the ark represents the salvation that Jesus makes available to us. And here's the way that works. God calls to Noah and he says, Noah, I have a job for you. I have an assignment, something I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. Now, I have a twisted sense of humor that that word is never found in the Bible up to this point. So you can only wonder if Noah didn't have a conversation with the Lord and said, Lord, I hear what you're telling me. But what's an ark, right? I mean, I need just a little bit of an explanation here. And so then the Lord goes into this description of how he is to take a particular kind of wood, a gopher wood that would have been useful for building a boat of this kind. And then he begins to describe the size of the boat. Now, we read it in this translation, 300 cubits, and we say, how big is that? I, we don't measure by cubits in this Western world, so what's a cubit? Basically, what I'm telling you is it's about 450 yards long. I mean, this thing is huge, three decks, but it was built long, and it was built wide, and it was built low to the water. Now, there are a lot of people skeptics who would look at this and say you know that that thing wouldn't have floated it wouldn't have worked I mean that's not what God intended for Noah to build but yet I want to ask you a question what do super tankers look like today what do the tugboats look like that are floating down the Mississippi River now they're not all that long but the super tankers are and they are wide and they are low God knew exactly what they needed and described it for him to the nth degree and said, Noah, this is exactly what I want you to build and this is why I need you to build it this way. Would you agree with me that the ark was one of a kind? I mean, never had experienced that before Genesis chapter 6. I don't know that we've experienced it since Genesis chapter 6, especially one for this purpose and one of this kind. Follow me. Go to the New Testament. Do you remember when the Bible says, For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that He gave His only begotten Son of God, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. The word only begotten there in the Greek, we run over that and we just say it, it refers to Jesus. But let me, let me tell you something. That word only begotten is a unique word. It's the word monogenes. Now, that's going to be on the test. You need to write that down. Monogonies. You know what that means? The only one that exists like this. When John was inspired to coin for us that one verse that just encapsulates the gospel so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one of a kind son. That whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. 
what John was telling us is in the same way that the ark was one of a kind that would save Noah and his family, Jesus is one of a kind that would save you and me. You say, I thought there was more than one way to heaven. Oh, no. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Somebody says, well, Bill, that's, that's sort of narrow, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you preachers, you're so fundamental. You, you're hypercritical, and, and you won't open your mind, and you're, you're sort of bigoted. And well, Let me describe it for you this way. Let, let's just use this illustration, and I encourage you to use this illustration. Should anybody ever say to you, there's more than one way to heaven, here's what I want you to tell them. Suppose you go to the doctor. And the doctor looks you over, examines you, and knows exactly what's wrong with you, medically speaking, and says to you, but, but we have a cure for you. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to be cured. And you say, well, that's what I need. That's what I want, doc. Help me do that. And so he brings in for you three clear crystal glasses of what appear to be water. I mean, they're all, they all look just alike. They, they all have the same amount of liquid in them. And you can even, you know, sniff over the top of each of the glasses and they all smell the same because they're odorless. There's no odor to them whatsoever. And the doctor says to you now, you can pick the one that you think is right for you or you will let me who put these glasses together for you tell you which one has the cure in it. Because I want you to know that of these three glasses that are before you, what appear to be just water, one of them is just water. Has no medicinal value to it whatsoever. And you can drink it and you will appreciate having the water, but it's not going to cure your sickness. It's just water. There's another glass here that well, it has cyanide in it. And if you drink it, it will kill you. And there's a third glass here that has the medicinal value that you need. And if you drink it, you will live. So let me ask you a question. Do you want a chance picking the right one? Or do you want to let the one who put those together tell you which one is the right one? Our lives need to be lived out in such a way that we are under heaven saying, Oh Lord, I'm looking to you to give direction to my life. And you, you tell me that Jesus is the way to heaven, then Jesus is my choice. He is the one I choose. He is the one I live for. I choose Jesus. I love the fact that the Bible says here that Noah did what the Lord told him to do. So salvation is available to us in the same way that the ark represented salvation for Noah and his family. Jesus becomes our salvation. But I want, I want to show you something else here. Look, look at what it says. It says in verse 6, Noah was 600 years when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark Noah to, to his male and female as God had commanded Noah. It came out after the seven days upon the water of the flood that the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day of all the fountains of great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Now, we don't have time to read everything here. I need to hurry because I've only got one point under my belt. And I've talked about the salvation that's available to Noah and his family. But let me remind you of the safety that was there for Noah and his family. You know the story. I encourage you to read more of it this afternoon. Remember, God said to Noah, Noah, the Bible says go into the ark. That's an English translation. A better translation is God said come into the ark. Now what's significant about that? The position of God, right? Is God on the outside saying y'all go in or is God in the ark saying come to me? Come in the ark. And we know that as Noah and his family entered the ark, that they put pitch on the inside of the walls. Pitch, tar, very similar probably in substance that is used today on roofs literally around the world, but especially right here in the United States. I've, I've had lots of school buildings where I was a teacher or an administrator that had tar and rock on the roof. And whenever it would leak, what you call the roofer, and they bring out that machine and pump the tar to the top of the roof. The word for pitch here in the Old Testament, I love this. It's the same word for atonement in other places. The atonement, as the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer an atonement sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the Bible would talk about Jesus atoning for our sins and paying the price for our sins on the cross. There was safety for Noah and his family in the ark. And you can think about it and it's a horrible thought. As surely when the floods came that people would swim up to the ark and knock on the door and say, Noah, let me in. Noah, let me in. Oh, no. Because as Jesus would describe in Matthew 24, it's not until the flood came, right? That they realized, oops, I have not adequately prepared for this moment. And then they look to Noah and say, Noah, let us in. Lord, Noah, help us out. But Noah and his family are safe and secure in the ark. The Apostle Paul penned about 13 letters in the New Testament. Over 120 times he uses the phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What's he talking about? It's the same idea of Noah and his family being willing to go in the ark. To reap the benefit and the reward of the protection of God in the midst of this calamity. You and I can only be safe, spiritually speaking, when we are in Christ. Question, do you know Him as your Savior? Do you walk with Him daily? Are you in Christ at this moment? The safety of the ark. Last point, third point, think about the security of the ark and the security that we have in Jesus. I'll ask you to think about it this way. What do you think Noah and his family did when they got in the ark? Think they had a recliner or two there, rocking chair and just sat down and said, okay Lord, we're in here, the door is closed, it's raining outside, it's time for a good movie and some popcorn, right? You think that's what they did? I don't think so. I think every single day there were things that needed to be done because they had animals in that boat, right? And if any of you have pets and animals, you know that there is a maintenance that's needed with them, right? They got to be fed. You got to clean up a little bit. 
You got to feed yourselves. You see, Noah and his family didn't just go in the ark and say, okay, God, feed us. Okay, God, feed the animals. Okay, God. No, they understood that they were a part in this partnership. And as God had inspired Noah to build the ark, he did it. He was obedient. He, they brought the animals in. They did all that God had commanded them to do. But once they got in the ark, there was continued service and obedience that had to be lived out to the Lord in that moment. You see, folks, we forget that sometimes because we forget that we don't work for our salvation. But when you become in Christ, you can't just sit down and relax and say, well, it's all been done. I know I'm going to heaven when this earthly life ends. There's nothing else for me to do. Every day that we're alive, there's an opportunity for us to do something for Him that reflects and represents the obedience that he deserves. And the security is we don't have to work for our salvation. We relax in him so we know that the salvation comes from him, but yet we still do what we can to honor him with our lives in that day in, day out routine of serving him. Now, Jesus in the Old Testament. Don't know that you've ever seen it that way or thought about the ark representing Jesus and the cross and His death and the salvation that He makes available to us. And I want to come back to that as we close the message, but there's one little caveat here that I have to deal with because I just want to be honest with you. I know what you're thinking. If you're not thinking at this moment, at some point down the road you will think it or you have thought it in the past, and that is, well, if God is an all-loving God, why did he destroy the planet? Why did all these people that died lose their lives and God started over with Noah and his family? I want to show you something very interesting. Go to that next slide that I had prepared for you here. In the, I want to ask you to think about this for just a moment. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 5 to see it. Do you know the story of Enoch? The Bible says that he walked with God and was not, for God took him, right? So we start with Enoch there, a man who lived a godly life and never tasted of a physical death. We don't we don't put an age to Enoch because he never died. But Enoch is a starting point for us here because we know that Enoch gave birth to a son named Methuselah. Right? And what the Bible says is that Noah, excuse me, that Enoch was 187 years old when he gave birth to Methuselah. Now think about it this way. Now excuse me. He, he gave birth to Methuselah when he was like 300 years old or so. But then Methuselah is 187 when he gives birth to Lamech, a man named Lamech. Lamech is 182 years old when he gives birth to Noah. And the Bible says that Noah was 500 years old when God told him to build the ark, but it took 100 years before the flood came. So when Noah was 600 years old, the flood came. You, you add up those years, 
What's significant about 969 years? Do you remember? That's not a rhetorical question. You can answer, class. What is that? What, what, what is significant about 969 years? Don't you remember? Look at it in Genesis chapter 5. Look at verse 27. Genesis 5, verse 27. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. Methuselah, as far as we know, was the oldest man in the Bible. You say, well, I'm still not following you here, okay? There's one little verse over in the book of Jude. Go ahead and put that next slide up if you want to show it. It's found in verse 14. Jude is that little book before the book of Revelation in the end. I want you to listen to this. Look at what it says. Verse 14 of Jude. Jude only has one chapter. So, In verse 14, it was also about these men that Enoch, remember Enoch? In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You say, well, what's significant about that? A Bible scholar by the name of John Phillips says that the name Methuselah literally means, now get this, this is the light bulb exposure. If you don't get this, you've missed everything I've tried to tell you. The name Methuselah means when he dies, the flood comes. And what we sense here is that from the book of Jude, that little, little prophet Jude in the New Testament, that he is reminding the people to whom he is writing that Enoch preached all those years, reminding them, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And when his son was named, he was inspired to name him Methuselah. Because when people would hear his name, they would know when he dies, the flood comes. And I'll tell you what many people believe, and that is that the very moment that Methuselah breathed his last, it began to rain upon the earth, and the flood waters came. How long did God tell the world that judgment was coming? 969 years. That's a long time. How long has it been since Jesus was here? 2,000 years. Did they know in the days of Noah that the flood was coming? Absolutely. For 100 years as Noah's building his ark, people come by, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And, and he's telling them, God told me to. There's a flood coming. He's going to destroy the earth. They knew what God intended to do and why he intended to do it. And there was ample opportunity for them to turn to God, but did not do so. So I think it's a little unfair to say God didn't warn them. God's precarious. God just, you know, instantly, you know, had a knee-jerk reaction and said, oh, they're rebe- I'm going to destroy. No. For 969 years, he lovingly embraced the world with his prophet's of Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech 
and Noah and tried to tell them there's a God there who loves you and cares for you, has a plan for your life. Will you trust Him? Will you serve Him? Will you be obedient to Him? Because one day this world is coming to an end. That's what He tried to say. And for 2,000 years we've been saying the same thing. And it's all because of Jesus. And what He's told us about Him coming again. Two takeaways and I'm done. Number one, my question to us as Christians this morning, are we living in the awareness that one day He's going to bring this world to an end? You see, I, th I think if we, if we had a little more sense of urgency about that, we'd be doing some things a little different. Some stuff that we say is real important wouldn't be so important anymore because our affections and our sights would be set on things above and not on things in this world. Are you living with that awareness? If you live in that awareness, then you're open to the world and you want to let them know that God loves them and has a plan for them and you're willing to share Jesus when and where you can. I encourage you to do that. But second of all, last takeaway, if you're not prepared for that moment, I invite you to trust Jesus as your Savior this morning. Because only in Him can you find the salvation and safety and security that you long for so deeply. Pray with me. Father, how we love you. How we thank you so much for sending Jesus to this world to show us light and mercy and grace. Thank you for reminding us that is. You look down in this world, you see the blackness and the darkness of all the evil and sinfulness that is here, but yet also you are looking for those individuals to whom you can extend grace and love and mercy. For those individuals who will accept your plan for their lives, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us this morning and remind us of just how much you loved us by sending Jesus to the cross. Should there be any person in this service who has yet to publicly acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, would you give them the freedom to come forward? During this invitation time, we give this invitation on your behalf. Father, if there are Christians here this morning looking for a church home, because your spirit would lead them and because they sense an urgency of being obedient and service to you, let them come to unite with this church family because we receive members in many ways. Let them come and say, yes, we want to be a part of North Winona Baptist Church and use what we have to honor the Lord that we love. Father, in whatever way you would choose to deal with us this morning, have your way in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Quietly, would you stand and sing this morning? There are public decisions you wish to share. I'm here at the front to receive you. Let's sing together.